0: Watchers in the Fourth Dimension
1: That is a chair with a panda on it. Now please stop bothering me. Rash action is worse than no action at all. Hmm? Your humble servant, Dr. Caligari.
0: (laughs) Doctor who? (laughs) Yes, you're quite right. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don.
1: I'm Julie.
0: I'm Alan. And I'm Riley. Thank you for joining us for our very special William Hartnell-era retrospective. You might have been a bit surprised to have heard an extra name and voice in the intro right there. That's because, for the very first time ever, we are incredibly excited to have a guest star on the main show. I am absolutely delighted to introduce Sir Alan Siler. I gave you a knighthood there, Alan. Wow, that's impressive. <laughs> Alan is a stalwart of the Atlanta convention scene, having previously run the TimeGate, later Hulanta convention, as well as having worked behind the scenes at DragonCon for many years. Alan has had the privilege of interviewing multiple Doctor Who stars live on stage, including Michelle Gomez and Katie Manning. Most recently, he's moved into publishing, and his publishing company, Cosmic Press, has published such titles as Children of Time, The Companions of Doctor Who, and Doctor Who's Greatest Hits. Alan, we really are delighted to have you with us for this special episode, and thank you for agreeing to moderate.
2: My pleasure. I am so excited to be doing this, and thank you for inviting
0: me. You are more than welcome. None of us have any idea what Alan is going to ask, which is what makes (laughs) this so exciting. With that, I will hand the reins over to you, my friend.
2: Excellent. Thank you so much. Well, so you guys have made it through your very first complete doctor. That's quite an achievement. I'm kind of wondering, uh, we'll, we'll start off really easy. Now that you've seen the entire first doctor, what are your overall impressions of his era? For those of you who have seen all or some of his stuff before, Watching it in order now, has it changed your perception of him as a character and his time on the show?
0: For me, it's a bit of a cheat because this isn't the first time I've done this. I've watched it in order before and even doing that, I mean, the last time I did that was around around nine years ago at this point. I'm older. My perceptions in general and the way I view things have changed a lot. Some of my favorite stories were really reinforced whereas others I found a little weaker than I had previously. There were a few surprises. And overall, I mean, I didn't quite pick up the last time I did this on the arc of the Doctor softening right at the beginning and how it's really the way that first season moves. And, and that's something I feel like I really appreciated a lot more this time around.
3: I had seen the first Doctor, except for missing episodes before, about maybe two or three years ago. And when I watched it the first time, I appreciate it just as a Doctor Who fan or of, of New Who and coming into the, myself through Classic I was just enjoying moments of like, oh, oh, there's that. And that's when that started and going forward through that. And I was mostly into that element of it when watching it the first time. And of course, the wild outlandish monsters and stories watching it this time what I noticed more so than ever, especially while doing this podcast with Anthony's background information is how much the story seems to bounce around so much and how the characters interact based on what's going on behind the scenes production wise and uh, that's something I had not picked up on before. So being able to see how chaotic it was at times after Verdi Lambert left really was something that stuck out to me this time more so than the first time I watched it.
4: I think for me, the thing that I noticed especially within the first season, was just how feature-complete it felt. That whole vision of what Doctor Who was, and in many ways, what has remained, was always there. It took a little bit of tweaking as far as the Doctor's character went, but the interaction with the companions, even the monsters, a little bit of light comedy, it was all there right from the very beginning, and I found that very impressive.
1: I guess for me, since I hadn't seen any classic Who... I've tried my best to avoid spoilers, but after 50 years it's hard to completely <laughs> avoid some of those. But like what Don said is coming from New Who to this to, you know, the first Doctor, so you can see a lot of the elements there already. It was very enjoyable. We had our camp count, so some of it was was fairly campy, but that's one of the things you got to love about that era of TV. And I just really liked how, you know, also from a female perspective that they had strong female companions from the very beginning and that's kind of i think one of the things that stuck was that since that had happened that's why we get that years and years later not counting Especially Susan and Dodo. vicky i think <laughs> right <exactly>. yes <laughs> yes but barbara and vicky are very much kind of your staple companions and i like that you can just see that from the get-go
2: Well, the other side of this question is, having now seen the complete first Doctor run, does it sort of shape the way that you now see later Doctors? And certainly for Julie, having been only on the new series, does it broaden your view of who the Doctor is based on the Doctors that you know from the new series?
1: It doesn't, it doesn't. I mean, that seems a really contradictory thing to say. I am able to, I won't say compartmentalize, but I'm able to see things from different perspectives. And I do view New Who as being a bit different from Classic Who. And I think part of that is, is timing. And I think that really, it's just, it was a complete revamp. But at the same time, You know, you could see that they took the elements from then and kind of pick and chose what they wanted to keep, what they didn't want. But I do feel that I, I won't say more of an appreciation, but a revised interpretation of the Doctor and how it started and kind of what he turned out to be. Because in this one, he's just very much a, he's lost all the time because he can't control his TARDIS at all. And he's just kind of on for the ride and kidnapping people, which... It's, it's, a, it's a bit different because he kind of willingly does this with people who he has no idea if they're ever going to be able to go back to where they were. And that's a bit different from the new series. So it's a different spin, but it's fun. I hope that answered that.
3: <laughs> <laughs> sure. Absolutely. <laughs> I thought it put more into focus so many of the similarities between the 12th Doctor and the first Doctor. And I guess it makes mm. sense while the mm-hmm. First Doctor then shows up and the last serial of the Twelfth Doctor. But I, I I could see that comparison so much. The only thing that makes me upset is why didn't they take the opportunity and get Peter Capaldi in that Hartnell First Doctor hat just once, just quickly. <laughs> that would
0: have been wonderful.
1: Always about the hats. Always
0: about the, the hats. hats the <laughs> we chairs. are a very hat-friendly podcast. From my side, I mean, I have the benefit of having seen all of classic Doctor Who first, so I've, I've already seen the return of that influence when we get to the sixth Doctor and then as Riley mentioned, when we come back to the 12th Doctor as well. And when people think of the, the Doctor that shaped to the majority of later Doctors, they, they tend to think of Patrick Troughton and the second Doctor. But you always see a little bit of Hartnell there, a little bit of that kind of cantankerous yet grandfatherly character. And without this era, we wouldn't have the show. And we see a few little references in the Russell T. Davies era to stories like The Web Planet, which is completely bonkers. But a fantastic, <laughs> but, but a fantastic episode. <laughs> don't start <laughs> but I think it's probably more influential beyond just being the genesis of the show than people give it credit for mm-hmm.
2: both the show and the character of the first doctor evolve a great deal over these first three seasons what do you think are some of the big turning points both for the character and for the show whether it be on camera or behind the scenes
4: I'm stepping forward now because I have the last question I think the best part <laughs> for me was when Vicky came on board. Agreed, and the doctor had that wonderful relationship with her that really he probably should have had with Susan, but didn't.
2: Totally agreed.
4: And just seeing, just seeing that acerbic facade kind of fade, and he he really cared about her and what happened
0: to her, and that was that was really nice to see. And he started to have a bit more fun. Mm-hmm. I think a big turning point behind the scenes was when Verity left. No, you know, even. Mm. Yeah, who'd have thunk (laughs) it? But that's when you started to see the chaos beginning. The direction of the show changed, but they didn't quite commit to making it darker. They didn't bring the star along with them. William Hartnell is known to have not got on with John Wiles. Even Peter Purvis has said that he didn't like John Wiles. I mean, the guy was a problem. And as we alluded to earlier, it really started shining through into the show itself at times.
1: And while true, then there was... The next turning point with, with Ennis Lloyd, where it seemed to get back a little bit to where we wanted to go, but also took a step further. So those last few serials started to kind of get into some more storylines that seemed closer to Doctor stories that we were used to.
4: Except for the smugglers.
1: Well, yeah, the smugglers that exists. I didn't realize that that was the thing. I keep thing.
4: forgetting what actually happened in it. I know you mentioned last time they were pirates, <laughs> I think, but it's gone. <laughs> it
1: was Boring pirates. That's it. That's all I got.
3: (laughs) I don't don't know if this is a turning point, but I couldn't help but think about this. I know this is kind of outside reference material, but the biographical film, Adventure in Space and Time, I couldn't help but think like when we started getting, when we got to Ben and Polly as companions in the war machines, I couldn't help but think of that very quick scene in Adventure in Space and Time where it shows Hartnell just getting like to a point of who are these people? his original family of companions have all like floated off. And I don't know, I kind of feel like when you watch the show and we had talked about this with some of the Ben and Polly episodes, there have been times with the doctor with Susan and Ian just, or whatever companion grouping you want to put together, he he will have episodes where he's separate from them, but you still feel there's some sort of connection between that group. And so far I can't speak for it overall because they're still going on our current watch. Ben and Polly don't seem to have that connection with, the first actor at all and it it feels almost very clear even when they're in scenes together let alone all the times where they're apart and i just couldn't help but think of that part of the dimension space and time where that came up when we got to that point in the show
4: to tag on to that to go back to those companions when you had barbara and ian and vicky i mean what was it the chase where the first five minutes or so with them just sort of sitting around watching TV, essentially Mm -hmm. with the doctor and the companionship with them was just so
2: great. I don't think Ben and Polly would
1: have. Was that when someone was cutting hair? I think
2: so. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. But it's interesting though, when you, when you watch the first season and you, and you think about how the doctor begins and he's so cantankerous and basically kidnaps him. When you get to the start of season two, he has changed so drastically that he's to the point now where His biggest concern is for Susan and even Barbara and Ian's safety, where he didn't care about that at all at the beginning of first season. So that first season's evolution is really fascinating to watch. 100%.
0: And I think one turning point within that first season is The Edge of Destruction. That was where trust really got built, was at the end of that story, when the Doctor realizes that it was the TARDIS trying to warn them all the time, and Ian and Barbara were not responsible for it. And all of that mistrust from the very first episode, An Unearthly Child, through all of that runaround with the cavemen, the Daleks, and then the mistrust going on through The Edge of Destruction, by the end, that starts bleeding away and, and he starts beginning to trust them and they start beginning to trust him. And the rest of season one at that point is really just building on that trust.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. One of my later questions was going to be about adventure in space and time. So, But since that's already been brought up, I'm curious to know, I'm sure all of you have seen it, having now seen the first Doctor's era, how do you think it was represented in that movie? Accurately? Exaggeratedly?
3: How do you think? Well, I I guess I'll start with this because I'm the one that brought it up. So uh, (laughs) I'll take responsibility. (laughs) In all fairness, when I saw the film, it was relatively recent after it came out. So I'm guessing it was 2014, 2015. So at that point... Based on timing, I don't think I had even started watching First Doctor episodes at that point when I watched it. It was completely alien to me. And so, uh, and I have not seen the film since. So I can't really, unfortunately, I can't really answer your question. But after talking about this, I now want to see the film again. (laughs) That was
4: a long way to say that you can't answer the question. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
3: Well, it came across kind of as an apology because it's like here i am bringing this up and then it's just like and i'm unable to talk about riley's filibustering and and
1: riley i'll just i'm just gonna go ahead and say i haven't seen it i'm sorry guys but you know it is what it is (gasps) i know i'm a terrible person
0: we will get round to it might make it part of the 50th anniversary when we eventually get there in about eight years time but to me it came across as having been written as a love letter to the origins of Doctor Who I mean it's no surprise to anyone that Mark Gatiss who wrote it is an enormous fan of the show and I think really he wanted to show that and he wanted to really portray this era with a lot of affection and I mean there were some elements that were probably true probably exaggerated I think William Hartnell's illness probably didn't play out quite the same way it was shown on screen, but it's one of those things where there are enough elements of what was obviously true to make it a very effective story. I think they had to portray certain events to make them dramatically effective. But overall, I think it was a very good representation of of the era and of the origins of the show. I really, really enjoy it. Yeah,
4: I think it's a, a really great film. Even if you haven't watched this era of Doctor Who, it's quite enjoyable. I think the one thing that is maybe a little off, but I don't know how they could make it better, is that portrayal of the First Doctor. Because there's a, a tendency to play him almost more curmudgeonly than he really is. He just has so many different facets, it's hard to really nail down, except for just watching William Hartnell's performance.
2: People always use the phrase, thinking outside the box. And I think that that applies to the First Doctor era very specifically Except that I, I, what I think is that they didn't have a sense of being boxed in. Like there isn't really a box for them to think out of because their stories ranged from 12 episode space opera to a Western to historicals to horror. So I'm, I'm curious to know, what do you think are some of the most daring or challenging stories, both to the cast and to the audience? What would be the biggest surprises for someone who is watching them for the first time?
0: Go on, Riley. I know you want to talk about it. (laughs) Go ahead. Uh, A little episode called The Web
3: Planet. I think it's, uh, absolutely, uh, an idea and a concept that was really out there. They really tried and I'm just a, I, it's just something I appreciate. I like things being experimental. I like people really giving an effort and going out there. And I recall very vividly the first time I saw the web planet and I felt like I had, uh, was in the middle of a fever dream is what it felt like. So, <laughs> and I said, wow, this is amazing for something like this back then to like really affect me so much. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. It's trying to be as foreign and alien as possible. And yeah, that's that's why I will always have a soft spot in my heart for it.
0: I think one real show of ambition and trying to do something a little crazy was the Dalek's Master Plan. If you include Mission to the Unknown as a part of that, the gumption of doing a thirteen part story is just insane. I mean, we get that now because we have heavily serialized, intertwined TV shows like Game of Thrones. Or even a more recent example, Star Trek Picard, which really is like a 10-hour movie. But just the idea of doing a 13-part story with one director directing 12 parts of it. And by the way, episode 7, we're just going to go off and do something completely random because it's Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, you know... particularly in a day where no one had a VCR, they didn't exist yet, DVR didn't exist. So the idea that you could hold someone's attention for three months as this story plays out, that was amazing, you know? And once it went out, it went out. There, there were no repeats. I think the ambition and the sheer gumption behind even just trying to do it was something amazing. And it says a lot that when they decided they wanted to try and do it again in in the early 70s with John Pertwee's Doctor and do another 12-part Dalek epic, they went to Dougie Canfield, who directed it, and said, so, any advice? And he said, yeah, Doug- <laughs> Don't do it.
4: (laughs) I would like to point out that it really wasn't that odd for them something to do something weird at Christmas. The whole thing did feature an evil Christmas tree. It all ties together. (laughs) But for me, and this is one of those stories I'm going to stand up for, much like Riley does the sensorites for some insane reason. It's a space museum. (laughs) I think Mm -hmm. the first Mm. episode. Of that serial is one of the best bits of sci fi slash weird fiction I've ever seen on television. It's ruined by an information dump at the beginning of the next episode because they were trying to bring people up to speed and you can't really summarize weird ambient mystery in 30 seconds. But that first episode is simply incredible. Agreed.
1: All right. And then one where I don't know if at the time I would have called it something completely brand new, but we talked about a lot with the Keys of Baroness being so much like a video game and they just kept on going to different levels and going to different places and having to find the keys is just, you know, especially from a retrospective perspective, it's just like, wow that just felt like Mario (laughs) and that was kind of like a really fun thing to watch, minus the creepy lumberjack guy, we don't talk about Yeah, I don't remember
4: the Mario (laughs) rape level, but maybe it was
2: (laughs) (laughs) one of the things that I love about the First Doctor era is the stories that are pure comedy. So what are your thoughts on those kind of things, the, the the meddling monk and the myth makers and the Romans and all those? What are your thoughts about the comedy in this show?
4: It tends to suddenly change gears very quickly near the end
2: of those stories. <laughs> That's the truth.
0: <laughs> you, you have comedy, ha and then suddenly everybody's dying left and right. Yep. I mean, I I think I'm on record as having said that the Romans is one of my favorite Hartnell era stories, and I'm standing by that. I think it's a wonderful story. Very funny. Very, very well done. Well executed. I really enjoy the more comedic historicals. I think they are genuinely just such a wonderful change of pace before they decide to just brutally murder everyone at the end.
1: (laughs) Well, I think that kind of goes into that problem with historicals where you have to either be so close to the truth that it's like boring because you know how it turns out or you have to do something really outlandish. And just to make it a comedy, it's, you know, how it ends, you know, that Nero burns it down, but how about with some comedy at the beginning so that you're not expecting it at the end, you don't want to be dreading something that you already know what happens in history. So I think comedy works well with historicals.
3: And while we're on the subject of comedy, let's not forget the best comedic character of them all, Alabama man from The <laughs> Chase. <laughs> My only regret is that if they only could have kept that scene going another three, four times, just keep doing that joke over and over they and over again. They should have kept again. cutting
4: back to it throughout the entire season.
3: <laughs> yeah. yeah. It would have gotten to levels of absurdity that you can add to it. it would have been fantastic. It, yeah, if only he'd been the companion instead of Steven. <laughs> oh
0: well, well, golly! They did have Peter Purvis under contract. He could have played a dual role. There That's you all go. What I'm saying. A oh. a true oh. a
1: true southern fan fiction right there. Just write yourself into Doctor Who. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh.
2: Every TV show, and certainly any long-form show like this or Star Trek or Saturday Night Live or whatever, watching it shows you a reflection of or a comment on the era in which it was made. So how do you think this reflects those early to mid-60s, socially, politically, culturally? How do you think it reflects what was going on, either in an accurate way or in a contrary
1: way? I'm going to leave the colonialism for someone else.
4: This is an Anthony question. (laughs)
1: <laughs>
0: I was going to say, I guess I'm the history guy. I was told there'd be no British yes, history um, questions on this exam. There were
4: miniskirts and it was in black and white. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I was just going to touch lightly upon some of the depictions on, like, I'll take Susan and Vicky for examples. At first, it seemed like they were going to take Susan and make her the teenage group and make her in that vein. But then they just kind of destroyed her character. So that didn't really seem to play through after that first episode in in Unearthly Child. Then when Vicky comes in, I wouldn't say quite counterculture, but, you know, obviously she was all up for revolution and things of that nature, which I think kind of played in a little bit in that time period. And just her seeing these societies where she's saying, well, this isn't right, let's do something about it, is probably as much as I'll say, and then I'll let Anthony, go on.
3: Before Anthony starts, I just want to point out really quickly that it is noticeable and that the design choices, the set design choices, especially when they're trying to show something alien and futuristic, definitely has that early to mid 60s vibe. I personally enjoy it.
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot to unpack in this question. <laughs> I love Julie's point. I think the companions fundamentally are meant to be trendy reflections of the time, particularly in terms of Vicky and Susan. And even though Vicky is meant to be from the the future, she is a huge Beatles fan, and that's established very early on. And it's one of those things where they make her intensely relatable to someone in late childhood, early teen years. And then on top of that, piling on what Julie was saying about her tendencies to inspiring revolutions, very countercultural and speaking of which, someone mentioned leaving talk of colonialism to me. I mean, there's a very mixed message through the Hartnell era. You know, The Space Museum is clearly anti-colonial. By the time we get to the Ark, it seems to be a very pro-colonial message. And then we're back to anti-colonialism for the savages. And I think that's very much a sign of who is running the show and what their political beliefs right. are. So you've got Verity, then John Wiles, then E. Right. Lloyd. On top of that, you have a story like the Dalek's Master Plan and, and Mission to the Unknown, which has jungle warfare, so there are shades of Vietnam in there. Then finally, the 10th planet, you have the, the Z-bomb, which is, in my opinion, a, a very clear reflection of concerns around mutually assured destruction and, and nuclear holocaust. And then on top of that, you've got the technology aspect that starts creeping in and the fear of technological progress with Votan in the war machines and the Cybermen in the 10th planet. So I think there are lots of little references to what was going on at the time all through the era in with a number of different lenses, depending on the viewpoints of the people who are running the show. It's not
4: political, but you also can really contrast Vicky with Dodo. Whereas Vicky shows a very positive view of the youth counterculture, Dodo is almost the opposite. You can tell it was written by someone as a very dim view of youth at the time. Hmm. Hmm.
2: Well, that feeds perfectly into my next question. And that is, when you're talking about Doctor Who, you have to talk about the companions. And I think modern viewers, if they, they, they have a perception of the classic series as having weaker particularly female characters and Uh, so when you come into uh, the uh, Hartnell era and you see people like Barbara and Sarah Kingdom and these kind of characters what do you think the evolution of the companion character is throughout the Hartnell era
4: well it never got better than Katarina that's for sure oh come on
1: (laughs) 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 Katarina could have been so great
4: I'm, I'm taking controversial viewpoints just for the sake of it.
1: I don't think you're wrong. I think that Katerina, they had mistakenly decided that since she was from the past that she couldn't have been a companion, and that's utterly false.
2: Right, right, exactly.
1: Now, her depiction of believing the Doctor was actually a god and, you know, everything was just left up to them and that there's no point of really doing much of anything, that's another issue altogether, but they didn't have to write her that way, but- I think that you start off with pretty good companions. I mean, Susan is a hit or miss. I do think that Susan got some good moments, but utterly, I think that they just didn't know what to do with her at the time. Barbara and Ian are phenomenal together, and I love how they played with the Doctor because, like, Babs was always just on point. Everything revolved around her. The plot moved with her. And then Ian and the Doctor, they wrote each other the wrong way, but they really liked each other, and it was just this fun dynamic, especially because you don't see as many male companions in New Who. There's hardly any. And then Vicky was obviously a step up from Susan, and I think it's because they learned problems with Susan. And then when you change the background people, the production team, you then get the very weak companions all of a sudden. And it just seemed to deteriorate for a while. And Peter Purvis did his best with with what he had. Changing companions and getting Dodo just, you know, wasn't going to cut it. And so I think that they're probably, hopefully going to be back on track on getting better companions. But to say that it started off with weak companions, you can't say that.
0: We were very effusive in our praise across the board of particularly Barbara at the beginning. And I think we, we all four of us still miss her to this day. We talked a lot about Stephen and how perhaps underserved he was by the scripts. You never quite knew whether you were going to get a script in which he was going to have to absolutely carry it or he might have gone from being the hero to being the comedy relief. Or he might have to sing. He really just had to be an incredibly versatile actor and a bit of a chameleon. I'll go on the record as saying I'm an unapologetic
4: Vicky fanboy. I think she, more than any other companion, even Ian and Barbara, set the template for what the companion role would be in the future. She's smart. She's self-determined. She doesn't just get kidnapped and scream. She's an active part of the plot.
2: And, And often a problem solver.
4: And often a problem solver.
3: You know, thinking about all these companions from the first Doctor era, and you know how we rank them, and it, I, I couldn't help but think, like maybe there is a connection here between that. The reason why we like Barbara, we like Ian, we like Vicky, and despite being shuffled around a bit, Stephen as well, is that it seems to be that there's a very clear outside of the Doctor personal goal or narrative for these characters that you can easily point out. Ian, Barbara, got to get back home. Vicky want to travel with the doctor, want to stay with the doctor. And Steven, well, one could argue his was immediately was just to escape where he was. But then it was traveling along with the doctor and kind of maybe there was something going on with Vicky a little bit. But for everyone else, though, it's very hard to really identify their own personal motivations. And that makes them seem flatter as a character.
2: Are you saying Dodo didn't have much motivation as a character?
3: (sighs) I'm trying to find out what her goal was. that's the thing it's like she she just stumbles literally stumbles into the TARDIS and then stumbles out i mean like there's no like drive what's her drive to bring germs to the future yes <laughs> <laughs> oh so she's responsible for coronavirus
2: <laughs> got it oh that dodo
0: <laughs>
2: can't trust her damn it dodo <laughs> We talked about companions. Let's talk about some of the adversaries. The Seventh Doctor once said, you can judge a man by the quality of his enemies. So what do the First Doctor's enemies say about him? How do the enemies shape the way Doctor Who evolves over the first three years?
3: I would say this. The first thing that every enemy of the First Doctor can say without a doubt is that whenever he goes, you're in trouble. (laughs) Very true. Very true.
1: (laughs) I'm not going to hit the high points of like Daleks or Cybermen because those just seem talked about all the time. One that always stuck out to me for some reason was in the rescue when the doctor had that confrontation with Coquillian in the cave. Just the staging of it, what was said... The first, it was all verbal, and then there was, you know, some fisticuffs thrown in there. That, to me, spelled out like a great Doctor moment that you would see in New Who as well as in Classic Who. And I think that was kind of that big eye-opener of this is what the Doctor can be and what kind of adversary he can have. And, you know, having that dialogue of just, I know what you're doing, and this is how I found out, and this is what we're going to do about it. It just, I don't know, for some reason, that was like the quintessential... Adversary for for me. Any villain that can bring out the Doctor moment is a good villain.
0: I'm gonna have to be obvious and and talk about the Daleks. I don't know why they never brought those guys back. They were so cool. Look. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I mean they have a plunger how is that terrifying
0: when you think about them they became part of the cultural conversation so quickly dalek mania kicked off and and really i think the show to some extent relies on its survival past that first year on the fact that the daleks had been so popular they come back for well they come back three times after that first time in the hartnell era over the course of the, the three years for if you count mission to the unknown as a separate story they have two movies based on them as well i think from a cultural perspective you you just can't understate their importance to the history of the show and to the development of the character. Where's my Vord film, Amicus? Hmm? Hmm? <laughs> <laughs>
1: the Vord.
3: While we're talking about villains, I have to make mention because I think it gets easily forgotten, and I know a lot of people do definitely want to forget this serial, but I thought that the animus as a villain, as a concept, and even the, in the voice acting were absolutely evil and terrifying. Really well done.
4: The Animus was a very good villain.
0: Very cool. Yes. It's just a shame about everything else.
2: Oh, no, no, no. no. Oh, Oh,
0: we'll leave it at at that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Not everything, but there's a lot of contrived things about that story in the plot. I'm not even talking about the costuming or how they did it. It's just there's too many contrived plot points. That's my problem with that story. Sorry, I just had to say that. <laughs> I have that as notes in my like very, very short five-word notes. I have contrived plot <laughs> as one of my notes. So, had to come out.
0: I also think that story was kind of underserved by its director as well. And who would that be, Anthony?
4: Oh no, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: that would be little Dickie Martin in his director's chair. <laughs>
4: <laughs> to quote Don. Yeah, that sounds like something I would say. But we also had the Doctor facing off against Robot Frankenstein, and that was cool. (laughs) That
0: was pretty cool.
2: There's been a big industry built up around animating the Lost Episodes. They've been focusing mostly on Troughton because once you have the digital puppet built for the characters, you're going to use them as long as you can. So what are some of the first Doctor stories that you would really like to see them tackle? Which ones can be brought new life through the animations?
0: The savages.
2: (laughs) The savages to me seems like when Enemy of the World was found, people realized that it was a brilliant story and it wasn't the boring knockoff that everybody thought it was. And I think the same thing would happen with that one.
0: I 100% think so. I mean, I think we all were surprised by how much we enjoyed that story.
1: The way that I look at it is I, I look at it as what stories would benefit the most from having it there. And we loved the savages across the board. We really enjoyed the savages. So I think it's a disservice to say that that's the one that we need the most because what we need is one where we think might be underserved and might be better. I'm going to point out Marco Polo. Our first one, because there were certain scenes where there's the sandstorm. There were a lot of fight scenes that we didn't get to see where I think that if we could visualize some of that, it would actually benefit the story as a whole. Pink Cho's little story that she laid out, they could even animate that story that she tells, which would be a really cool concept. That's the way I look at finding either new ones or animating them is what would actually benefit from it.
3: I guess that's why I would go with the Celestial Toy maker, though there's so much visually going on in that story and like that really does set the tone and like set the mood for the entire thing you want to see everything that's going on and see how wild and abstract it is and kind of surreal but that, that would probably be my choice then that's a good one
1: Don do you have one? I
3: don't know <laughs> I know it is Don if we're going with Julie's concept of what could benefit the most I can't think of an episodes that benefit the most from it than the
0: smokers <laughs> I think I should be <laughs> Wait, did we watch the smugglers? <laughs> did that happen? All I know is I hadn't slept in two years. My insomnia was so bad, and I was in a coma for three days afterwards. I'm going to take a controversial
4: choice because overall oh. we didn't really enjoy the story that much. Although we had we had fun with it, maybe Galaxy Four. Yeah, yeah,
1: or, mm. yeah. I think it could, yeah.
4: Mago was delightfully insane. I liked the design <laughs> of the Rills.
2: Yeah, agreed.
3: Got to get some chumblies. Got to get some chumblies up
2: in there.
1: Chumblies! They already have
2: the, from Power of the Daleks, they would have to modify them a little bit, but they have the, the digital models already of Daleks. So what Dalek story would be? I mean, obviously Master Plan is the biggie. Would they tackle that one? Once they get everything built.
1: I think it's the last that they would tackle. They have to get that right.
2: Exactly. And I think they, they would also even maybe do it in chunks. The first four episodes or maybe at least two releases of six
0: episodes each. That's what I was going to say, Alan. I, I think they would have to do it as two releases because otherwise the cost benefit just wouldn't be there from a financial perspective.
2: Moving from animations to Blu-rays, we're getting the whole series of complete season Blu-ray releases. When I was at Gallifrey One back in February, Russell Minton and Pete McTighe, who basically managed the Blu-ray line, said that eventually every season will get released and the black and white seasons are not being saved for the last. That won't be the last six ones that they do. Which first Doctor season makes the most sense to release first based on lots of
1: Season two.
2: Uh, lots of things like a number of episodes missing and the uh, impact that it'll have on uh, a modern audience and that kind of
1: thing. Still season two.
0: Yeah, I'm getting with season two <laughs> yeah, as well.
1: you know, I I
3: feel the same <laughs> way. Season two. I don't know why. It just, it, it was instinctual. <laughs> it's the obvious
4: choice, but I think I would go with season one. You just get where everything started and there's mm-hmm. a, a good chunk of those still exist.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I, I mean... I, I, I know I... what you're
4: going to say because you're going to have to sit through sense rights again. I know none of us want to do that, <laughs> but, but they made it. It's just part of.
0: <laughs> I agree with Riley on season two, just because a, there are literally two episodes missing. Yeah. And that's two episodes of the crusade. Yeah. So from that perspective, it makes sense. I feel like it's also when the show had really got into into its stride. There wasn't a lot of behind-the-scenes change, so you've still got the Verity era, but you've got Vicky in the TARDIS for most of it. It's really starting to move along at a nice pace. You've got those set elements. I think if you're looking to kick off the, the black-and-white era with a season Blu-ray box set release, to me that's that's the logical one to start with. And I with.
2: think it's got a, a really strong run of stories and some really inventive stories and I would see season one being held for maybe the sixtieth anniversary. So maybe maybe season two mm. will come out, you know, next year or something and season one will be for an anniversary year. I could see that. When we're talking about the first doctor, we're in a unique position where that character has been portrayed by a number of other actors in other formats like the movies or stage plays or later on in the television series. So Talk about some of the other ways that the First Doctor has been portrayed compared to the original.
3: So about Peter Cushing. He's one of my favorite actors of all time. I mean, because I love Hammer horror films. And as a child growing up in this country in the 80s, uh, you always think of Star Wars with Peter Cushing because Graham Grand Tarkin. (laughs) His performance of the First Doctor has none of that cantankerousness. No. Right. He seems more kind of playing the very stereotypical... Absent-minded professor. Yes, heads of the cloud professor type, which is not to say that it's a bad performance, because I find Cushing to be very charismatic, and I think he has the look to play a very intelligent character. That's usually what he does. But is it really the first doctor? I mean, is it a reflection of the first doctor? No, it seems very much, like we were saying, generic, highly intelligent professor type, but... Still, still charismatic though.
1: (laughs) The irony of what you said is that he looks the smart, intelligent type, but if you actually look at it, he doesn't actually do much.
3: That's true. That's
4: true. His smartness is usually off screen as far as that goes.
1: Yeah, it just seems that so much of that just is happenstance. All of a sudden, things seem to work out because the plot says that they work out. It's not necessarily because of the Doctor. But I don't disagree that he's very charismatic and he looks the part. It's a different take on the Doctor and they did that on purpose. So I'm not going to say that it was bad because, you know, it's not on him as to how they wanted to portray the Doctor. But it's a different take and he's interesting and the problems were less with him and more on other parts. Of those movies.
0: I'd like to talk about David Bradley as the First Doctor in Twice Upon a Time. And I I think David Bradley did a great job, but I kind of equally hated what Stephen Moffat did with the First Doctor (laughs) in that Mm -hmm. script. They made him come across as incredibly sexist, quite bigoted, not at all open minded. And when you actually watch the First Doctor era from soup to nuts, for want of a better term, that's just not how he was.
1: Now that you point that out, so I had watched that episode before I started this. Now that you point that out, you're right, because he was very harsh to Bill and was saying, like, why are you even here? And going back and watching these first three plus seasons, like, that's not how he interacted with people at all. And that's not how he would have treated her.
4: I think they used him as a representation of an older type of male at that time rather than the actual First
3: Doctor yeah yeah that's a very good point that's why for david bradley playing william hartnell playing (laughs) the first doctor in adventure in space and time is more on point for Mm -hmm. his performances
1: his performance is excellent it's not about his performance it's how they wrote him yeah so i think david bradley is phenomenal i love other parts that he's been in and his part as a doctor i think is really good
0: just to draw a parallel, I, I know, Julie, you definitely haven't seen it. Don and Riley, I don't know. But if, if you look at Richard Herndall playing the First Doctor in The Five Doctors, it feels like they almost fell into a similar trap. I mean, one of the first things he does on entering the TARDIS and meeting the f- uh, the Fifth Doctor and his companions is to send Tegan off to make <laughs> sandwiches. sandwiches. <laughs> like, woman, get in the yeah, kitchen. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Again, I, I just don't think the first Doctor as we've just seen him would do that. I, I almost feel like some of those later writers are trying to use him for comedy relief or, or don't really necessarily understand the character. I do think that the best portrayals of the First Doctor by anyone other than William Hartnell are William Russell and Peter Purvis uh, voicing him (laughs) in some of the companion chronicles for Big Finish. I guess because they worked with him for so long, they have his various vocal inflections down to a T.
2: For fans of the new series, people who have only come to the show within the last 15 years, you hear about these people who want to tackle the classic series and they start at the very beginning and it's such a cultural shock for them. They don't always follow through. How do you think is the best way to approach the First Doctor's era for a younger, newer viewer?
4: You need a British friend who harasses you into doing it (laughs) and then you're trapped forever.
3: (laughs) <laughs>
1: <laughs> I am available for
0: hire. My rates are pretty good.
3: I think it all depends on what is it exactly about New who that you really enjoyed. What pulls you to it? Outside of the fantastic stories, the mind-blowing concepts, the you know the quippy dialogue, that this and the that. To me, it was always a story about the concept of human beings dealing with someone who, basically, for all intents uh, is is a god so to speak to us with all this cape, all this capability, all Katarina. this intelligence, <laughs> a God. And in the first series, kind of an a-hole. Oh, very much. So. Right. And it's, to <laughs> me, it's like, how do you, re- how do you deal with that? I mean, how do you deal with the concept of basically a, an effective immortality when you don't have immortality, a person who has experienced so much? I mean, that to me is like, it's a reflection of on, on the human. It's It's more of a reflection on the human companions, more so than who the doctor is. The doctor is just a force of nature. And so, if that's what you like about the show, and and I I feel like this is, is reflected in what we liked about the first Doctor. It's 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 Barbara. It's Ian. You see it there. It's with Vicky. You see that personal interaction of human beings dealing with someone or something like this. You know, some character like this. That and how that reflects the mystery character, the Doctor, and how that reflects them themselves. What does that show about themselves? That's that's to me. You watch it for that, and it's there within these episodes, despite kooky buggy-eyed monsters, all these things that you can look back at in production values of the early 1960s from the BBC, you can look past all that enjoy it for its campiness, but the heart of it is that, and I think that's what people should be looking
0: for when they're watching this show My advice is, if you're trying to get your partner interested in the Hartnell era (laughs) (laughs) sit them down and make them watch the Censorites and if they won't do that, then, then they're not the one for you walk away you deserve better
1: i will actually build upon what riley has said basically if you're one to say well that's not my doctor whenever it switches so if you're if you were a david Tennant fan and then matt smith comes along and he's like well he's not the doctor this might not be for you (laughs) because it is a much bigger change between David Tennant and William Hartnell than it is between David Tennant and Matt Smith. And also, if you aren't used to watching old shows or old movies, it will be hard. I love old films. I'm a big fan of the Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra, the, that kind of era of films. So I'm kind of used to that kind of production, not even necessarily from a sci-fi perspective, but just in general, you know, the, the old black and whites. So that wasn't really much of a shock to me. And then, I mean, Doctor Who has always had bad special effects, even in cl- <laughs> in New Who it has bad special effects. So that shouldn't be any different. If you like whenever there's a new Doctor and you like old classic films or TV shows, then you should be able to get into the first Doctor.
4: It's not really the production values or the special effects. It's that the pacing is slow mm. in the first mm. ones. but. Yeah. That said, have them watch the first episode of Unearthly Child. You don't have to go on with the cavemen, but that first episode really sets it up. And it's it's quite an enjoyable 25 minutes of television. Absolutely.
3: I also have to think that it has a little bit to do maybe with culturally just how television was produced. Like I had been recently rewatching old classic episodes of The Twilight Zone. And that is a all-encapsulated... One episode, full completed narrative done in 22 minutes every week. Bang, bang, bang. And that is just something in America that we're just used to. Something is done in one episode and that's it. And what Don was alluding to with how things go slowly is that they have the advantage to you because you have X amount of serials and then you have so many episodes filling them. And that's just something that for American TV viewers, we're not used to. I mean, other than most recently, as we discussed, well, it's something with Game of Thrones, where you could argue a season is a serial, yeah. and the episodes, you know, right. complete it. Right. So,
0: you know, just touching on something Don mentioned. I mean, there's been a an adage in fan circles for several years now. If, if you want to introduce someone to the First Doctor, what you should do is show them an unearthly child, and at the end of that first episode, skip the caveman nonsense and go into the Daleks. Mm.
2: I think even the Daleks, though, is, is very slow paced for modern
0: eyes. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. There's so much
4: padding.
2: Yeah. And what's really interesting is that, you know, I think most viewers would go into it knowing that the character of the Doctor is drastically different at the beginning. But the first time you meet the Daleks, they're very different than what they evolved into.
1: Oh, they're very talkative.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and very emotional. <laughs> And the first time you meet the Cybermen, they're (laughs) drastically different than what they became later on. So I think there's so many instances of culture shock.
0: I mean, genuinely, the way I think it should be done is pick something that you find highly entertaining, Mm -hmm. be it the Romans (laughs) Romans with its comedy or the War Machines, which is very fast paced. Yeah. Something that, that would probably resonate with a modern viewer more than the Daleks with its seven episodes.
1: I might suggest the Aztecs, I think, is a very well encapsulated arc.
3: I would argue for the edge of destruction because it's the it is what they call a bottle episode, so to speak, and it's only two episodes. It's a bottle serial, so to speak. And not only does it give you more of a sense of the rules laid out, but also shows you the characters really laying down the tracks of the relationship between each other and all around. And so that to me would be like maybe if you don't want to like have someone go through the trek that is the Daleks, go first episode of Unearthly Child straight into the only the two episodes of the Edge of Destruction. And then that will give them hopefully that will hook them. And then you can say, all right, going into Marco Polo now. Get ready for get ready for seven episodes. And we have none of them. We have none of them. <laughs>
2: <laughs> since you since you brought up an unearthly child, and this may be a question that's better saved for ten or fifteen years down the road when we get to Eccleston, but <laughs> as mm. Unearthly Child is the launch of a whole new series, how do you think it compares to Rose, which basically served the same purpose in two thousand and five?
1: I'm not gonna lie, I would never recommend Rose as the first episode for people watching new Doctor Who. <laughs> really? I always tell them to watch what what was the second one? The end of
3: The End of the World. End of the world. Of the world. Yeah. End of the world. Of I, the
1: world the same thing. I always recommend yeah. that one. Because it was a risk and it didn't pay off as well as it probably should yeah. have. But End of the World, I think, is a really, really fun, a really good episode, and has that interaction between Rose and Nine, and it just works so well. Mm -hmm. And and Cassandra, I mean, we can't forget (laughs) about her. But An Unearthly Child by itself, I think, stands up fairly well. So I would probably argue that An Unearthly Child is a better launching point than Rose was. But that's just me.
0: I think they had very different purposes. Even though Doctor Who had been off the air for 16 years, with the exception of 90 Minutes in 1996 in the UK, it was almost there still in the cultural knowledge. People knew what the Daleks were. They roughly knew what the Doctor and and the TARDIS were as well. Catherine Tate didn't. Catherine Tate didn't. I still think that's an act, by the way. um, It's very possible. (laughs) I think the purpose of Rose was to reintroduce Doctor Who, whereas the purpose of An Unearthly Child was to introduce something that no one had any idea about. And and you look at how the mystery is woven in the two stories. In Rose, it's very much Rose is trying to find out who the Doctor is. In An Unearthly Child, the focus of the story isn't the Doctor, it's the mystery about Susan. Yeah, and. Mm. The Doctor isn't the focus, he's where it leads, but for the majority of that episode, he is not the focal point. Mm-hmm. He's
4: not the mystery, which you just okay.
0: totally stole
4: what I was going to say, so I'll just say, well, he's well, not my yeah. nine.
2: <laughs> he's not the starting mystery, but he is a mystery yes. that's introduced secondarily.
0: And I think because of that, it's a much more layered story than Rose's, and it's a lot more interesting because of that. Mm-hmm. And
3: also you have more in-play characters. I mean, you have Barbara and Ian. I mean, Mickey... Is there mostly is comic <laughs> relief? So Barbara and Ian are invested, especially at the end. In fact, they are the audience surrogates. The unearthly child Susan—that's just as at at the beginning, just as mysterious but as Rose the has is.
4: burping wheelie
3: bins. So you know,
4: give and take.
0: <laughs> I was going to say the other problem with Rose is it was directed by the twenty-first century equivalent to <laughs> Richard Martin. <laughs> <laughs> so <Wow>. there's that. <laughs> Somewhere
3: at the desk where Anthony does this podcast, there's a, he has a knife that he cuts in a notch for each. I think there's a game. dartboard. Richard <laughs> Martin, just, just each time Richard, he does like just Richard Martin picture. Oh, that's
2: great. All right. We're going to play a little game that I'm sure you all know called marry, snog or avoid. <laughs> so I will give you a list of three names and you have to pick from those three, which one you would marry, which one you would snog okay. and which one you would completely avoid. Okay.
3: Ready? Very snog avoid. Mary, snog. Okay, ready. Right. Uh, where's my paper? All right,
2: all right. Ahead. Ian, Barbara, and Susan. Oh wow. Okay.
1: Oh.
4: I'm gonna have to avoid Susan because she would probably start screaming about something. And who wouldn't want to marry Barbara? Unfortunately, that means I have to to snog Ian. You
3: know. <laughs> See, I'm I'm the flip of Dawn. There, I would definitely avoid Susan. I would snog the hell out of Barbara, and I would marry Ian. But he's. Just... <laughs> He's so wonderful, and he's so he'd be so fun to he'd be so fun to dress up because he looks so great in crazy costumes.
1: <laughs> I'd marry Babs. I'd marry Babs in a heartbeat. And yeah, I mean, I'd snog in and avoid Susan. Poor Susan.
0: I mean, I'd avoid Susan because she's meant to be what fifteen?
1: <laughs> <laughs> little that little jail baby
0: there, so definitely avoid. <laughs> Not a good look on anyone. Otherwise, yeah, I mean, who who wouldn't want a life of marital bliss with Barbara? Right. Um, which means you're left with snogging Ian. I'm sure not a my good usual smogger. type, but if it means I get to marry Barbara, I'd there do you that.
2: go. Sarah, Kingdom, Katarina, and Dodo. Oh.
1: <laughs> All right, I would avoid Dodo. I would.
2: She's kind of the Susan of this grouping. Uh, anyway. Yeah. Pretty much.
3: Pretty much.
1: I guess I'd have to marry Sarah because she's a badass. Right. Oh, I'll snog someone from the past. It's fine.
3: Yeah. I'll go next because I'll have to say absolute absolute ditto there on that one. Julie has got it. I'm absolutely in, in tune there. All the same reasons.
4: I'm close. I would avoid Dodo. I would probably snog Sarah Kingdom because she doesn't seem like she would be good to be in a long-term relationship with. And <laughs> I don't know. I guess if I married Katarina, I'd get to know her a little bit better.
2: And she would. And I'm from the future, so you'd be exactly, you know exactly.
0: I'm gonna have to go back with Riley and Julie. I mean, it's obviously avoid <laughs> Dodo. I like a dominant woman, so I'm open to marrying Sarah Kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Caterina. Yeah, she could be fun for a day or two, but I think she'd get annoying really quickly. So that that would just have to be a, a quick dalliance with a snog there. Mm. That, that's a good point.
2: Okay, the meddling monk, Johnny Ringo or caesar nero
1: <laughs> oh god okay um
0: uh well it's it's got to be avoid caesar nero i mean he'd probably try and poison you or his jealous yeah wife his because wife this is this it's is about the roman the times so it's probably a bit of polyamory going on there she would try and poison you wouldn't be good which means let's see Ooh, Johnny is a nasty piece of work. I, I'd, I'd have to keep that to a, to a snog and then run away, which which means I'm left with marrying the meddling monk who'd probably disappear off for years on end doing some nefarious plan, which you would, go. you know, lead to a life of peace and quiet.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I, I will chime in here. I agree completely with Anthony, but for a selling point for the monk, he'd be wonderful to play board games with and other like games against, you know, as you get older and, uh, while you're married to him. So it works. <laughs>
1: See, I am going to avoid Nero as well. I'm going to marry Ringo because I believe that he would get shot in a day or two. There you
2: go. <laughs> and mm. so then I'd be a widow. <laughs> well reasoned. And I'll just
1: snog the monk. <laughs> just, just throwing that out there.
4: I'm sticking with Antony's answer. <laughs> All
2: right, avoid a censorite or a monoptera.
4: Oh my god. <laughs> well, I'm gonna avoid the censorite. <laughs> I'm going to marry the Vord. Out of principle. And I, I guess that means I have Thank to you. snog a Monoptera, which I'm not a big fan of bugs, but you do what you got to do.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's it's got to be the same. I mean, the Vord, it's it's latex. So you got to just be into the kink community. So that's fine. Uh, and then you just kiss the Monoptera, I guess. And then, yeah, Sensorites, no, no bueno. Mm mm.
3: I, I'm I'm unanimous. I agree completely. Yeah, I mean, I might like web the I might like the web planet, but I don't want to talk
0: to him. <laughs> so I'm apparently the only one on this podcast who isn't a raging fetishist.
1: <laughs> uh, you just said you'd like to dominate yeah, women, yeah. so yeah. let's th- talk about the, this for the, a second. The, the latex there. there has to be a female void
4: out it or there. Leave I'm, just, it. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I'd definitely avoid the Monoptera. Oh, you just realized oh, yeah. that there was a sensorite <laughs> in there, didn't
1: you? about that for a second.
0: I did. I did. <laughs> oh, I don't want to play this game anymore. Um. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll go with everyone else. Marry the board, avoid the sensorites, not the minoptera. <laughs> Welcome yes. to the fetish group, Anthony. Welcome.
1: One of us.
0: The vinyl
3: community.
2: Okay, this one I don't actually expect an answer to. It just amused me when I thought of it. So I'm going to throw it out there.
3: Coquillian,
2: Coquillian, or Cocky <laughs> <laughs> Oh!
4: <laughs>
2: and the actual last grouping is Hartnell, Herndall, or Bradley.
0: Ooh. I mean, am I the only one who's seen Richard H- Hold i don't, don't you think i've seen the five, seen doctors, the five doctors, doctors i've seen clips from oh, okay. it but not, no, the entire I, have not. Thing.
1: I have not i have not all right then we will scratch that have... right.
2: question yeah i mean
0: i can okay. answer it yep. but please go
2: ahead <laughs> you do it
0: yeah i mean obviously you've got to marry the original mm-hmm. gotta be Hartnell. Mm-hmm. wow and then i'm left with two two versions of the first <laughs> doctor that are just portrayed as raging sexists <laughs>
1: <laughs> good thing you're a man yeah, I know, but it's still
0: not the energy I want to surround myself with. I mean, I, I think Handel is slightly less offensive, so snog Herndal and avoid Bradley, much as the actor did a great justice to the part. I don't like the way he was written. So Yeah, yeah avoid. See,
2: I, I would avoid Herndal and and snog Bradley just for the shock effect to his version of the first doctor. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I mean, and plus you have an actual opportunity to snog him, so like I should just go find him, right? Like this is how this works. <laughs> I'm actually trying to do this, right? Yeah.
2: <laughs> These are quests that I have given yeah.
1: you.
4: <laughs> so yes. I have a question for you, Alan, and it's a okay. two-part question. You mentioned earlier about how the enemies of the doctor help define his character. So mm-hmm. what do you think is the most dangerous enemy the first doctor faced? And why was it John Wiles? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: Oh, wow. Well, you are correct. It is John Wiles. <laughs> um, man, that's a good one. I don't even have an answer. Watch the stories and it tells you right there. Very true. Plus all the all the behind-the-scenes horribleness. It was a bad, bad chemistry. That's my answer.
4: Good answer. Good answer.
2: Yeah, sure. It was just great. <laughs> all right. So to wrap up, your final thoughts about the first Doctor, And what are you anticipating about moving into the second Doctor era?
4: Lots of reconstructions.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) get ready for that. (laughs) But at least you've got more animations now than you did when you started this whole podcast thing. So there's less reconstructions that you have to work through.
0: Which is definitely a positive. Yeah. I've seen it before. So for me, really what I'm looking forward to beyond revisiting some stories I already know I like and, and perhaps developing some new views on stories that maybe I didn't like so much the first time round I'm looking forward to the reactions of, of my co-hosts on the podcast and and seeing what everyone else here thinks of it because for me the second doctor is easily in my top three and i'm I'm really hoping that my friends here see what I see in him mm-hmm. When
3: I attempted my original rewatch of Classic Who oh so many years ago, I skipped stories that were incomplete. As you can imagine, I have very little information on the second Doctor because of how much is missing. I feel like I know the third Doctor so much more. So I'm hoping now, since I will be diving fully with either recons or animation and not missing a thing, I will get a better understanding of the second Doctor and really understand everything about him. And then you talked about wrapping up the first doctor one thing that really does stick out about the first doctor especially now more so than ever is that as much as it had been joked about back maybe 10 15 20 years ago of television shows that had a person who was elderly basically being the lead character and i don't know if it still goes on now but i think of matlock or diagnosis murder or something <laughs> Diagnosis like Murder is amazing. Old show.
1: and if anyone says otherwise i will cut them Sorry. Right. I have strong opinions no, no. about it's...
3: that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, My point being is that that's one thing that makes the first Doctor so unique is that you have an elderly, you know, an older character being the lead. And for his age, even back then, that was kind of unusual, let alone today. And so that's something that really stands out from the first. And granted, he doesn't necessarily show his age because of who he is as a character, but it, it still comes across in his behaviors. So I thought that was something that's very interesting that makes the first doctor era of the of the show really stand apart.
1: Well, I have a slightly different perspective since I have not seen anything after the first doctor. But so, first doctor, I'm gonna miss him. I really am. I really enjoyed getting to know him and you know seeing how his character. Especially in that first to second season, his progression was just so good mm-hmm. with him being super cantankerous and just getting to be very loving, let's be honest. And what I'm looking forward to, how they first decided to really come up with this idea that, oh, someone else can play him. Yeah, yeah. Because obviously being fan of New Who, I, I get it. And then they have to come up with reasons as to why it's not 13 anymore. And, you know, that's besides the point. But yeah, just to get... What did they decide to do? How do they play it off? How does it get explained? And then at what point do we start getting more into when do Time Lords come along and things like that? I honestly have no idea <laughs> when in the timeline it comes. So I'm just like, all right. I kind of knew that in the beginning they didn't have that idea just because of how the show was, how they came up with it. So I'm just like, all right, how long does it take mm-hmm. for us to get into some of these other things?
2: That's really cool. That's going to be an exciting trip for you.
1: Yeah. Like, what's this Rassilon business? I don't know what we're talking about, guys. Like, oh, well, you got a long people keep saying this name. I know, but it's just like, uh, wh- what? <laughs> anyway, yeah.
4: Sorry, I'm still laughing at what's this Rassilon business. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I, too, am I'm. I'm going to miss Tartanel, Especially the Hartnell that we saw in Season 2, where some of the yeah, rough edges yeah. had been worn off, but he was still a little acerbic at times but not where he was later on in season three, where Hartnell's health issues were clearly taking their toll and he was being sidelined quite a bit in his own series. Yeah. But I'm also really looking forward to the Patrick Troughton era. I've seen Tomb of the Cybermen, and I really loved it just because of his portrayal, his interactions with Jamie, and I think I'm almost done with our watch of of Power of the Daleks, and he's just as good in that. So I'm really excited to see how all these episodes are
0: going to play out. Awesome. With that, we are just about out of time. Alan, once again, thank you so much for joining us this evening.
2: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
0: Before we totally wrap up, do you have any projects you'd like to talk about that you're working on?
2: I have my first children's picture book that is 98.5% finished. I just got the final cover art delivered few days ago the interior is completely done so I have to be working on the layout pretty soon and then get it off to the printer so hopefully by the beginning of summer well and the plan is beginning of summer the idea was that it would be in time for summer reading but of course all the schools and all the libraries will still be closed because of coronavirus so I guess (laughs) (laughs) I don't know Um, so that's the big project that's on its way
0: Awesome. Once again, thank you for joining us this evening. And we'll be back next time when we find ourselves meeting the new Doctor and some very familiar foes on the planet Vulcan. No, not that one. You don't know that. (laughs) (laughs) In the meantime, all of our previous episodes are available on your favorite podcasting app. You can interact with us as usual on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at Watches4D. And as a reminder, you can email us at Watches4D at gmail.com. We do like to hear from you. And if you are enjoying the show, please do subscribe. Please leave us a review and please leave us a rating on your favorite podcasting app. All three of those things really do help out the show. But for now, thank you very much for listening and have a good one. You have been listening to Watches in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julia Filipek, Alan Seiler, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Brit for Hire, was recorded on Wednesday the 8th of April 2020. And always remember, if you give Riley an opportunity to talk about the web planet, he almost always will do so.